So welcome, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues, to this evening's panel discussion on Myanmar, being hosted by LSE's Southeast Asia Center. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm professor of economics and international development here at LSE and director of the center. I will be your moderator for this evening's conversation, as well as for the question and answer session afterwards. So just a few words about the center and some rules before we begin this evening's discussion proper. The Southeast Asia Center is a regionally focused center within LSE's Institute of Global Affairs. It's engaged in the study of, among other things, the political and economic development of individual ASEAN economies, of which, of course, Myanmar has been one since 1997, but also of the emergence of ASEAN as a coherent entity. You will all know that last year, Myanmar chaired ASEAN. This year, 2015, marks, among other things, the formation of the ASEAN Economic Community, as well as, notably, for this evening, next month, Myanmar's first widely contested elections in decades, offering, in the eyes of many, an opportunity, finally, of real electoral competition. Now, by some count, there are 93 political parties fielding 6,300 candidates that will contest over 1,100 constituencies in this upcoming election. Notable among those constituencies will include 498 elected seats in the national legislature. Of course, with the remaining 25% appointed by the military, you will all be familiar with the makeup of some of these things that we're going to be talking about. There are perhaps 20 different armed ethnic groups at play here, thousands of civil society movements alongside the ruling military-backed union Solidarity and Development Party, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, competing for the first time in a general election, truly since 1990, all potentially angling on different alliance configurations depending on potential outcomes in the polls. But of course, this is not just about the elections, significant though they might be, but there are also longer-term lessons here for how Southeast Asian societies manage the process of political and economic development with fiercely competing special interests in them, included among them ethnic, religious groups, cronies, and elites of all different stripes. Now, the Southeast Asia Center is delighted to be able to host this evening's event. Our panelists this evening are as astute observers on Myanmar as I believe you'll find anywhere. I won't repeat at length their individual biographies and credentials, I want to just quickly say Mark Canning has been UK ambassador to ASEAN as a whole, as well as individually Indonesia, Malaysia, and Myanmar. Jürgen Hake is associate professor in LSE's International Relations Department. He specializes in Southeast Asia. And just between us here, he has supervised more PhD dissertations on the region than I think is fair than I think an anti-monopolies merger commission would actually allow. But be that as it may, Yogan's intellectual influence is profound. Shibani Matani reports for the Wall Street Journal from Yangon itself. She regularly files closely read dispatches 
Uh, she had previously reported on, among other things, inequality in Southeast Asia and in Singapore, with many of her accounts, both on Myanmar and on inequality, scrutinized intensely by policymakers at the highest reaches of government. So this is the panel that we will get to hear from in the first few minutes, and after which you will have questions for. Ground rules here, please set your mobile phones to silent, but we also encourage tweeting, live tweeting on the event using the hashtag LSE Myanmar, as you see on the screen. This event is recorded, and we hope the podcast will be available soon. The running order for the event is that each of the panelists, in order, Mark, and then Yogan, and then Shibani, will make an opening statement on how they see from where they sit developments in Myanmar. After that, there will be a brief conversation among the panelists where they will be invited to respond to what each of the others has said. Following that, the audience will get to direct questions at the panelists. Now, the evening is scheduled to end at 8 p.m., and we are obliged to keep to that. But as I said, there will be plenty of time for questions. Let me now begin, if you would join me, first of all, in welcoming the, the panel broadly, but then Mark to come up to speak. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Good to see so many of you here. The legislative election in Myanmar on the 8th of November is going to be a very big moment for Myanmar, and it's also going to be a big moment for Southeast Asia, for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. Myanmar has been, I think, one of the success stories of the last few years since the opening up, the dramatic opening up that took place with the release of Aung San Suu Kyi in late 2010, the election of President, the elevation to the presidency of President Thein Sein in March of 2011. We saw, of course, the release of uh, Do Aung San Suu Kyi. We saw the release of hundreds of political prisoners. We saw the unbanning of Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, and we saw it fight, for example, a by-election in, in 2012. And we've seen an extraordinary freeing up of the media. Myanmar, during the time I was there, I left there in 2009, was one of the most closed and oppressive nations on earth, a disastrous economy and the most uh, repressive form of government. So it's been a remarkable opening up. There's also been a concomitant opening up of the economy. We've seen uh, the oil and gas sector opened up. We've seen liberalization in a number of areas. We've seen, for example, internet penetration, which was the second lowest in the world um, back in 2009, uh, again opened up. All of this is translated into jobs for tens of thousands of young Myanmar people. It's translated into the loosening of the sanctions that the EU, Australia, and the U.S. had in place against that country. Not all of them. The U.S. has residual sanctions against certain individuals still in place. And it also saw the start of a peace process to try and achieve some sort of reconciliation with the many ethnic groups around the borders of Myanmar. Now, no one is pretending this is perfect. There were still many, many things that were wrong. We've seen the persecution of the Rohingya, the Muslim minority. 
we've seen the birth of a really virulent strain of Buddhist nationalism that I certainly never saw coming, uh, which is exerting more and more influence on developments in the country. Um, we've seen many aspects of the economy that, that have not developed uh, as much as one would have liked to see. And finally, we have also seen clear limits to the willingness of the military to cede power, uh, the unwillingness to amend the 2008 constitution under which Doran Aung San Suu Kyi is banned from the presidency, and also the unwillingness to change the 25% of votes that the military has in the legislature. But all that aside, the balance, in my view, is uh, overwhelmingly positive. So the question coming up to these elections is whether that momentum is going to be sustained, reverse, or, or stay somewhere in the middle. But this is also a big moment for Southeast Asia. I was reminded of this. I've just come back from a month in the region, and I was reminded of how different the outlook in Southeast Asia is uh, compared to, say, 12 months ago. Not only do we see economic contagion as a result of the slowdown in China spreading through all the economies of Southeast Asia, some more, uh, more profoundly than others, but we see, for example, Thailand still under military rule with an ailing king and a very messy succession. We see Malaysia embroiled in corruption scandals and other political troubles, as well as its economic problems. And we see Indonesia somewhere in the middle, one year into the presidency of um, President Widodo, but again at a position that is neither going forwards nor reversing. So ASEAN, as it's called, badly needs Myanmar to stay on track and for the positive progress we've seen to be sustained. So the stakes are very high, both for that country and for the region in which it's situated. So some of the questions we might dwell on tonight, for example, and I, I know my colleagues will, what will be the fortunes of Doan Sang Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy? Will they be able to reprise the overwhelming victory they enjoyed in 1990 that was then seized away from them? Uh, how are they going to perform? I mean, my sense is they will be the largest party in the parliament, but they will not register as many votes as people perhaps expect them to. There is no polling, so that's very much a guess, but there are a number of factors which I see pulling back on the NLD vote. The first would be the extent to which Buddhist nationalists, who are now emerging, um, feel that the NLD represents them. Second will be where the ethnic minorities put their votes, most of them, I think, will put their votes in ethnic-based parties. You've got the 25% military vote in the parliament that, of course, is very hard to then win in your remaining 75%. Um, and then you've got weaknesses within the NLD itself, the extent to which it is a party of brave, committing, committed protesters, but is not a party that has got experience of government. So all of those things, I think will serve to pull back the NLD vote. We'll see whether, whether that's right. The next big question for me is the extent to which the military, which still calls the shots, is willing to loosen its grip. And we've seen indications in recent weeks of the limits of their willingness to cede power. We've seen the stripping of, of a guy called Thurishwe Man, the chairman of their party, the USDP, was stripped of the chairmanship. 
We've seen their unwillingness to amend the Constitution, all of which suggests they are comfortable in loosening the grip up to a point, but only up to a point. So the question is, if the NLD does get a majority, which I think they will, how is that actually going to translate um, into the disposition of the vice presidency, the presidency three months uh, on? Um, in conclusion, I mean, I, I would say that my gut feeling is Myanmar will muddle through uh, in a sort of suboptimal way. It's very hard to see the th how the three months between the election and the inauguration of the new president and the new government, there are myriad opportunities in that period for, for trouble, confusion, and mischief-making. But I do feel that, although I wouldn't say I was an optimist about this, neither am I a pessimist, but I feel that the forces which have opened up Myanmar over the last few years are forces which can be pushed back a little bit, but are very, very powerful. I think it is extraordinarily important for the military still that the economic success of the past few years is sustained. I think it's very hard to pull back um, the connectedness of the people through the internet, through the media. Um, it's very hard to sustain foreign direct investment coming in if you pull things back too far. My experience of working in Indonesia and in Zimbabwe and a number of other uh, places that have been under, either are under or have been under military rule, is that you cannot wish away vested interests. There are powerful vested interests in Myanmar, and the NLD and Doran Sang Suu Kyi will have to be very pragmatic in terms of the pace at which they expect the military to pull back from political life. That process in Indonesia has taken many, many years. In fact, many people would argue it's still not complete. And I think the same will be true of, of Myanmar. And I think progress can be sustained provided um, those underlying realities are recognized. So I think I'll leave it there, Danny, if that's right. Thank you very yeah. much. Right, well, good evening. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Danny, for inviting me to this uh, event. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I agree with um, Mark Henning when he says that the 2015 elections uh, will form a very significant event for the future uh, of Myanmar. And I say so for at least uh, four reasons. First of all, these are the first free elections uh, since 1990. Uh, secondly, the electoral process will be assessed in terms of Myanmar's political reforms and transition. Thirdly, uh, the outcome of the elections will, dis will decide uh, on how Myanmar moves forward from here, or indeed whether it will move forward. And fourthly, uh, the elections may also influence Myanmar's foreign relations with some countries. And what I want to do over the next couple of minutes really is to offer a few thoughts on what impact, if any, uh, the elections are likely to have for Napidor's relations uh, with Washington and Beijing. And in order to do that, uh, allow me to rewind uh, just a little the tape uh, uh, to offer some points about where we are and have been in terms of those two relationships. Speaking first about U.S.-Myanmar relations, I think these have surely come a very, very long way since President Obama 
in 2009, decided that his administration would adopt what was called pragmatic engagement, an approach which was to uh, take dialogue as one tool to engage the military. It constituted a major break, if you like, with the previous uh, policy pursued under his predecessor, President Bush, who is often said to have pursued a policy of regime change vis-à-vis Myanmar. Now, obviously, since the political accommodation that the government of Uthain Sein uh, reached with the leader of the political opposition, Do Su, in 2011, uh, the United States has been able to ease most of the sanctions uh, that it had imposed over a period of two decades, except uh, the military embargo, uh, the importation of gemstones, and, of course, also the so-called SDN list, which is that list which um, identifies certain people that you're not supposed to be doing business with. Um, The U.S. has actually heavily invested uh, in the democratization of Myanmar. Uh, It offered uh, the country a partnership uh, if it pursued uh, reforms. Uh, And I think in many ways uh, the Myanmar government uh, currently in power uh, has taken up uh, this offer. Uh, In fact, it has made quite a number of what you might say constitute political concessions uh, that were unthinkable before 2011. However, we should also know that the two countries, of course, uh, do have differences uh, in in, in relation to a number of core issues. Uh, There's, for example, the continued uh, debate about how to change civil-military relations uh, in the country, Uh, how to, in that context also, uh, to change the constitution. Uh, There are differences over the role of the military uh, in the economy. Uh, And there are various other concerns that the United States has, uh, be it in relation to the situation in Rakhine State, be it in relation to Buddhist extremism or nationalism uh, more generally, or indeed the fighting that is still going on in places such as Kachin State and elsewhere. (coughs) Within the United States, given these various concerns, there has obviously been a debate about whether the relationship has any scope to proceed further or whether indeed it has already gone too far. And I think that question, you know, that will be answered uh, after the election, at least uh, you would think by some again. Now, how might the relationship change? Uh, I think that would obviously depend on two Things. First of all, as to whether the elections themselves get a clean bill of health. Uh, what I mean by that is to whether they satisfy yeah, the international yardsticks uh, that we commonly use. The United States itself has said that it wants to see free and fair elections, that they should be inclusive, credible, and transparent. And many observers believe that perhaps this is possible. Myanmar and the, the relevant authorities will oversee such elections. But at the same time, there have also already been a number of concerns expressed. Some of these may concern an old issue, advanced voting, that we saw in the previous 2010 elections. Uh, The issue is to do with voter registration um, and, of course, also the disenfranchisement uh, of large segments of the population, particularly Muslims. Secondly, the United States, I think, also more or less, would hope that at the end of the day, Dorsu will be offered 
or is able to take up some kind of position of political authority without necessarily specifying as to what that might be. Of course, some members of Congress would wish her to claim the presidency itself, but constitutionally, she doesn't appear to be eligible for the highest office. Dorsu, of course, herself seems to be saying in recent weeks that she's interested in a smooth transition. And there are signs, if one interprets this, that she is nevertheless, what everyone says, preparing for some kind of role in the month and in years ahead. Now, and as to how that will play out, will obviously be seen after the election up to March. Now, in terms of the, <coughs> the questions, the factors that influence the outcome of or the impact of, of the elections on the relationship, some of these have already been mentioned by Mark. Uh, some of this will have to do with the distribution of votes for the NLD. Will the NLD get the landslide it may be hoping for? Will there be more than two-thirds of votes coming the NLD's way in relation to the lower house? How will the NLD fare in the ethnic areas and in the elections, therefore, as regards the upper house? Who will ultimately be able to claim the presidency? And what kinds of coalitions are possible, potentially, uh, in, the, in the period up to March? Now, depending on which scenario plays out, Washington may, of course, respond in quite different ways. If the NLD should win, and if, for example, it is possible for the NLD to form a government, be it as a coalition, be it with the understanding of the military, then one would think that this opens the door to deeper cooperation, arguably also to military engagement of the United States vis-à-vis -vis Myanmar, including security assistance. If, on the other hand, the USDP is able to carry the day, then, of course, the relationship may not move forward in precisely those terms, although it should not necessarily be expected to suffer either. The worst-case scenario is, of course, some kind of 1998 type. In that context, if that was to happen, then, of course, the United States would surely uh, reassess its role in Myanmar, and there should be a lot of congressional pressure for the administration to do so. But I consider that perhaps uh, be a scenario that is not that likely. Now, the impact on China-Myanmar relations. At the moment, China-Myanmar relations are arguably at their lowest point, at least since the end of the Cold War. At a time, therefore, when China was about ending material support to the Communist Party of Burma. There's been a massive deterioration in the bilateral relationship since 2011. Why is this? One could, of course, go into a lot of detail here, but I just want to mention three points. First of all, I think, there was growing unease among the political military elite and leadership about Myanmar's economic dependence on China, particularly in the 2000s, and China's approach to economic cooperation. Secondly, there was growing anti-China sentiments among the population. The PRC is obviously, post-2011 in particular, seen as having been instrumental in supporting the unloved military regime of the past, which was led by Senior General Than Shui. And thirdly, the events in the Kokang Special Region this year, where the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army tried to retake militarily ground that they lost in 2009. 
Although they don't say so officially, very clearly, there are numerous people who have suspicions about the role of China as regards this particular conflict. And this is actually a conflict that is very important, not only because of what's going on there specifically, but also because it is linked, I would argue, to the failure by the government to secure a broader platform among the ethnic armed organizations in favor of signing the national, uh, nationwide ceasefire arrangement. Myanmar's government has been opposed to including in this kind of arrangement the MNDAA as well as other groups that are fighting alongside this ethnic army. Most of the ethnic armies and organizations in Myanmar have wanted the Kokang group to be included in the nationwide ceasefire accord. But the government refused this, doesn't recognize yeah, this as a possible outcome, as a possible political outcome. It's striving for a military solution. And as a result, we have seen a split among the ethnic groups and arguably what we will see on the 15th of October this month is that there will be a signing ceremony of the nationwide ceasefire accord, but it will probably only include half of those that were originally involved in the negotiations uh, to sign it in the first place. So in terms of how can the elections impact on the relationship with China, I think from a Chinese point of view, they will be looking at the following four indicators. First of all, they may be looking at this question as to whether or not, having just spoken about the conflict in the ethnic areas, foreigners will be playing a more substantial role in the peace process in the future. We can assume that China would be opposed to this. Secondly, Chinese will probably, one, will, will probably wonder as to whether or not Myanmar will lift the suspension of the construction of the Misson Dam, yeah, which was suspended in 2011, uh, or whether they will not. Thirdly, they will wonder to what extent Myanmar will cooperate on strategic projects which the Chinese are pursuing, not just in Southeast Asia but beyond, under the so-called One Belt, One Road concept. And fourthly, of course, there's this big question, particularly if there was an NLD victory, as to whether or not Myanmar might, in the future, move closer to the United States and the West. If it was, then of course we can think as to what the implications might be, but arguably there is room here both for improvement of bilateral relations if the answer to these questions is yes, yes, no, yeah, but also the reverse. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jürgen. Shibani. Uh, yes, hi, everybody. Um, good evening. Uh, it's really great here to be back at the LSE, um, where I completed my undergraduate degree, so it's, it's, always, it's always nice to come back. Um, as Danny mentioned, uh, I live in Yangon, where I report for the Wall Street Journal on Myanmar. Um, I've been there, living there for about a year now, but been covering the country for almost three years. Um, and, you know, when I first came to Myanmar, I think I arrived there at a period of, of sort of 
just unbridled optimism. Um, it was 2012, President Obama had just visited. You know, people were extremely, extremely optimism, optimistic on what was going to happen within the country. Uh, you, you could sort of feel it in the streets, especially around the Obama visit. You know, there were people like putting up NLD signs everywhere, which is Aung San Suu Kyi's party. And, uh, you know, to them, uh, being embraced by the West was a really huge vote of legitimacy. And, um, you know, I think what, what has really changed over the past uh, two or three years is that that optimism has sort of sunk into a, a realism about how far this transition has actually gone and how far, you know, the, the, the nominally civilian government that now runs Myanmar is, is willing to uh, make concessions. Um, so I think um, I'm just going to start by talking about uh, the elections and, um, you know, what structural deficiencies there are uh, leading up to the vote. Uh, as Danny mentioned, you know, 25% of seats within Myanmar's parliament are still reserved for military generals, and those are appointed by uh, the senior general. So within this democratic election, only 75% of seats will actually be voted in, uh, and that's going to make it extremely difficult for any party to have an overwhelming majority within the government. Uh, even despite the NLD's popularity, um, you know, to, to win two-thirds of, of, the, of the available seats, which is what they would need to then form the government, will, will be a challenge. Um, and, you know, constitutional change to allow um, for the military to, to kind of step back and to allow for the 25% of seats to be reduced has failed repeatedly. Um, that process uh, has been debated for the past three years, but nothing's really come off it. Um, so, you know, when, when we're talking about the election, we're only talking about the 75% of seats. And, and that parliament will then choose the president, and the president and his cabinet will ultimately have a say of how this transition is taken forward. Um, as Danny has also mentioned, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is barred from the presidency, uh, which, is, which is another serious deficiency uh, because she is by far the most popular politician in Myanmar. You know, rallies are, are much like rock concerts, are, you know, packed thousands of people, you know, pushing forth. And I think the, the biggest problem with that is that most people in Myanmar don't actually understand the constitution and they don't actually understand that a quarter of seats are still reserved for the military. They don't actually understand that Aung San Suu Kyi cannot be president and I think that's going to set up the country for, for a significant period of instability after the November 8th vote. Um, Another huge structural deficiency uh, leading up to these elections is that the Rohingya, that you know, is a very uh, discriminated against population, Muslim minority population in Myanmar, are disenfranchised actually for the first time in, in Myanmar's history. So when we're talking about an election that's, that's more inclusive and that's the most democratic in, in 50 years, uh, we have to keep in mind that, that that's inclusive for the, the Buddhist majority population, but not so much... Uh, you know, the, the, the populations that, that Myanmar's uh, opening has sort, of, has sort of really targeted. And, and the Rohingya, um, who, you know, live in, in camps in, in the western Rakhine state, uh, which, which borders Bangladesh, they've, they've been leaving the country, much like Syrian migrants to Europe. Uh, it's a very uh, similar kind of story there. And um, they've seen their, their rights kind of steadily decline uh, over the past, the past few years, first with violent riots in 2012 that attacked them, and then, you know, then they were pushed into the camps, and then now they have their, their voting rights taken away from them and, and their temporary ID cards cancelled. And um, again, this is something that, uh, that the government hasn't actually been very good at uh, kind of uh, explaining to the Rohingya minority population. So like in, in my trips to Rakhine State, uh, you know, you talk to the population there and, and they really do believe that they can still vote and they, they don't understand why, why this right has been taken away from them, which, which again is going to lead to some, I think, instability around, around the vote. Um, 
leading from that is this uh, good, sort of uh, kind of surprising, as, as the other panelists have touched on, um, hardline Buddhist nationalism that has taken hold in the country. And, um, you know, it's, it's very notable that no major political party is fielding any Muslim candidates in the election, uh, even though, you know, officially they're about 4% of the population. Reality would be closer to 10%, I think. And, um, you know, that, 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 is a, that is a big sign, I think, for the, for the, for the Muslim uh, minority population in Myanmar that, you know, whether it's the, the ruling Union Solidarity Development Party that's uh, formed from the military or whether it's the NLD, which is the you know, party associated with human rights and democracy, no, no one's actually fighting their corner, um, essentially. And, um, you know, in, in like interviews with people in the NLD, they've actually said uh, the rise of Buddhist nationalism has stopped them from actually fielding any Muslim candidates. Uh, and, and they have sort of explained that to Muslim leaders within their party, um, that, that they're unable to do this because, because of the, the, the current tensions in, in Myanmar currently. Um, and, yeah, so even with all these, these caveats, I mean, uh, that there is still... <laughs> Uh, you know, a, a lot, a lot can change um, with the November eighth vote. Um, the 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 government, which will be the first democratically elected government in Myanmar's you know sort of troubled history of military rule, um, will be able to then uh, pick the president and and sort of see then how the transition will continue. And um, if I can just touch on a few major issues that I would think that would influence the elections. Um, I guess, to me, the biggest spoiler will be what I touched on, which is the rise of Buddhist nationalism. Um, you know, in this, this past weekend, uh, the, the group, the Association for the Protection of Race and Religion, or, or Mabatha, which is the ultra-nationalist group of hardline monks in Myanmar, uh, they've actually, like, they held a celebration, uh, basically uh, celebrating the fact that they helped to pass laws through parliament that would effectively legalize discrimination against uh, minority populations. They include a population control bill, a bill that stops uh, Buddhist women from kind of marrying outside their faith, um, and so on. And these these laws were passed ostensibly to you know protect uh, the the sort of Buddhist uh, kind of purity of Myanmar. Um, but I think more concerning for for the opposition NLD is that. The parties uh, sort of now being targeted by these hardline monks for speaking up against those laws, and um, you know the, the very prominent Buddhist monks are actually saying that you know the NLD is not Buddhist enough, and, and they're using all sorts of propaganda to uh, sort of slam on San Suu Kyi and her party, and say that they're not actually fighting for the protection of Buddhism. Um, this this rally over the past weekend was attended by tens of thousands of people. It is very clear that they have you know sort of mass support. And, um, you know, within Myanmar, I think the one thing I've noticed is that people really have a lot of reverence in their villages for their, like, for their respective abbot and their village head. And, you know, that there is, there is a, a, a huge chance that, like, if, if an abbot tells you, oh, you have to vote for X party or a Y party, despite Aung San Suu Kyi's overwhelming popularity, there, there is a chance that people would listen. Um, so I think, I think that that is one thing that would, would dent uh, the NLD's uh, vote share in, in this coming vote. Um, the other thing that um, my panelists briefly touched on is ethnic politics and how that's going to play a part in this election. Um, I think that over the past few years, the ethnic parties have definitely sort of come into their own. You know, there are a lot more of them. Uh, they're a lot more. They're a lot more vocal. A lot more organised. And uh, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, her one sort of failing, people say, as a politician, is that she's failed to like form alliances with them and you know, strategically decide which areas they're going to contest and, and sort of carve out Myanmar uh, based on, on, you know, um, on a kind of strategic way of, of fighting the military dominance. 
And uh, so Aung San Suu Kyi's party is contesting in every single ethnic area, and, and that has really uh, isolated some of the ethnic parties who thought that, you know, similar to the 1990 vote, there would be clear alliances formed, which would be strategic against the, the ruling USDP and to fight off military rule. Um, and I think that, you know, even, even though... Uh, President Thein Sein has not really managed to achieve, you know, the, this, this nationwide peace process that people hoped would be achieved. Um, you know, that there's going to be a signing on October 14, uh, 15th, sorry, um, but it's going to be with half the number of parties that, that were involved in the process. There, there are still some ethnic parties that, that do think that their lot might be better with this current government. Um, there are parties that are quite upset with Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, and I think that that kind of dynamic might uh, change sort of the, the overwhelming uh, popularity you saw of the NLD back in 1990. Um, the other thing I've also uh, noticed is that the USDP, while, you know, a, clearly a military-linked party, which is made up of former generals, They've actually tried very hard over the past few years to learn democratic ways. And the generals have, have, have been, you know, going around and sort of like having their rallies in, in areas where, where they think that they can get significant votes. And they've, much, they've, they've become a much sort of well-oiled, uh, slick kind of machine rather than a party of, uh, you know, military generals who, who, don't, who don't actually know how to fight in a democratic system. Um, and, you know, in some areas, they're, they're involved in vote-buying. You know, they, they're giving uh, generators to people and they're giving satellite dishes and they're helping wire uh, villages to, you know, the electrical grid. And, and in a country where, you know, mo most people really don't have basic necessities, uh, this, this really could impact the election because people do think, oh, you know, if we vote for the USDP again, maybe we'll get more loans, maybe we'll get another buffalo or another pig and we'll help our lot. Um, because, you know, as, as Myanmar is, is mostly a rural agricultural society, this kind of thing really does matter. And, and vote buying could have um, an impact in the election. Uh, you know, even Aung San Suu Kyi's party has uh, addressed this on their, on their rallies and they've said, oh, you know, take, take whatever you want from the ruling party, but in the end vote for us. I mean, it, it sort of remains to be seen, you know, how, how this will play. But um, I, I do think that especially in rural areas where people are not particularly following politics and they're more concerned with their harvest and, and how they're going to get by, uh, which, which is a vast majority of the population, um, that, that could impact things. And very different from, from what's going on in the urban areas where people are far more educated, where they have access to newspapers, you know, when, when, where they know, you know, the kind of election dynamics and, 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 and that's something that they're aware of. Um, I think the other thing that's been really interesting to observe has been um, Aung San Suu Kyi's kind of fading glory a little bit, especially within urban areas of, of Myanmar and intellectual circles. Uh, obviously, she is still by far the most popular politician in the country, sort of um, you know, superstar kind of glory everywhere she goes. Uh, she's widely revered because she's the daughter of Aung San, which is the nationalist hero, and his portrait still hangs on people's walls and homes. Um, but she has definitely isolated big parts of, um, you know, the, the student movement that, that actually helped her rise to prominence um, by not fielding candidates of the 88 generation student group within, uh, with, with this coming election. And, um, you know, so there are prominent activists like Coco G and, and others who feel very sidelined um, and who had helped, and, uh, helped the NLD campaign for constitutional change and who had agreed with them not to form a political party because they thought that there would be this alliance and they would all sort of contest together under the NLD's banner. And uh, that, that has definitely isolated some who've gone out then to contest as independents or, you know, uh, have not aligned themselves with the NLD and, and who are now openly criticizing Dorsu in a way that I think you would have never seen four years ago and who are questioning this, this notion that she should be the rightful leader of Myanmar. 
Um, and I think that has kind of spread into the diplomatic community as well. And, um, you know, even even the, the sort of U.S. And, and to a lesser extent the U.K. are also kind of questioning whether it really was that wise to formulate policy around Myanmar based on a single individual, which they used to do. Um, so I think I think you're going to see that that kind of dynamic um, change as well with the geopolitical relations of Myanmar, depending on, on how the election goes. You know, if, if Aung San Suu Kyi cannot become president, or even if the NLD does not win a majority, what will she then say, and then how will the international community then respond? I think that's going to be really interesting to watch over the next three to four months. Um, and I think that. Uh, you know, in, in conclusion, there, there's definitely going to be a lot of political uncertainty over the next few months. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate how long the process of horse trading uh, is, is going to go on for in Myanmar because the vote is on November 8th, but that's not conclusive in any, in any way because it will only form the parliament and then the parliament will then have to decide on the president. And that process doesn't have to happen until March. So, so there's going to be a very long period of political uncertainty. And um, just, t- just touching on, on the economy for a second, um, I think a lot of foreign businesses uh, have been and continue to be very concerned about this because you know, throughout the reform process, uh, sort of decision-making has been concentrated in the hands of very few. So if, if you were a business trying to get a license approved or, or trying to get something passed, you would go to a couple of key ministers. All these ministers right now have, have stepped down from the ministerial roles to run uh, and to contest these elections. So, you know, that, that, that has happened, that process has happened since June, and with the election uncertainty going to last till March, um, I think that, that there's things in Yangon are quite still in terms of like the business community and, and what they're doing. Things are definitely a lot quieter than they were a year ago. And I think a lot of people are waiting to see how things will turn out. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Shibani. So now you've got three perspectives on this upcoming event, but not just on the upcoming event, but more general longer-term and, in fact, geopolitical issues having to do with Myanmar's relations with the United States and China, among other things. We heard, I think, some good news about how this, could, this is the freest election that Myanmar will have seen in decades. But on the other hand, also some nuance in how what many of us might have originally, many outside observers, not, not many of us, but many outside observers might have originally thought would be a walkover because of the extreme personal popularity of one of the, the protagonists in this, actually sees a diminution, and a diminution not just in the different things surrounding institutional barriers like the different articles in the Constitution that still prevent Aung San Suu Kyi from becoming president, but also in some of, of her own actions. The things that she said about ethnic and religious practice in the country, exclusion of the Generation 88 student leaders, as well as the rejection of the United Nationalities Alliance, a coalition of ethnic-based parties. And so for me, maybe just to get the discussion going, it's no, it, given the institutional obstacles, given these nuances, there seems to me the possibility that neither Aung San Suu Kyi's party nor the current ruling uh, USDP will emerge as the strongest single government-making entity. And if that's the case, because of these institutional barriers, are we going to be needing to look at coalitions and alliances that will form? And if so, who's going to go with whom? Who's actually already got natural friends at work? 
that's the question I throw out for the panelists up here. If they wish, they can respond to that or other things that uh, might have come up in the conversation. So perhaps we can begin with, uh, with Jorgen. Well, it's, I think this is very difficult to speculate on. Yeah? I mean, there was at a time the assumption that um, <clears throat> there might be an alliance between uh, Dorsu and Thura uh, Shweiman, who was uh, heading the lower house of parliament. Um, but um, as Mark already said, that uh, potential alliance came unstuck yeah, when I think he was removed earlier in the summer. And uh, uh, it became clear that he might actually not... Uh, be the first candidate of choice, yeah, even from within his own party, uh, let alone do, you know, be able perhaps to get the backing of those people who sit in parliament who are from the military. Um, so there is, a, there is a question mark, therefore, as to um, what other people might be waiting in the wings yeah, uh, to potentially uh, attract yeah, the votes that they would require in order to emerge uh, successfully as uh, uh, as president, you know, or if they make it not to the very top, but at least to the uh, vice presidents. Yeah. Mark? I think it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's very hard to see how it's going to come together, because mm. she, um, uh, Don Sung Su Chi hitched her wagon, uh, as it were, to Thorish Man, who's, who's now unceremoniously been dumped. So it's not quite sure what the plan B is. Mm. Uh, my gut feeling is there will be a coalition of sorts. It will still be one that the military dominates. I think a bigger issue for Myanmar is the issue of capacity mm. because, um, as Shabani said, when you go there, it's the same two or three names that come up in connection with any reform, whether it's the tender process for the oil and gas blocks or telecoms, it's the same amazing two or three individuals who are not young, many of them are in their 70s, mm. who are carrying this thing forward. So the issue for me in a way is not whether it's NLD or USDP, it's who is, where is the talent? Where are the technocrats that are going to carry on and, and carry this um, process of change to the next level? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. Shibani. Um, yeah, my other two panelists have already talked about the alliance or the alliance that was forming between uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and Thura Shui Man. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that, that Thura Shui Man is, is politically dead. I, I do think that if the NLD still manages to win um, a majority of votes, they, they will have a say in, in you know, who they can nominate for president. And the way it works, you, you don't actually even have to be an elected member of parliament to, be, uh, to become president in Myanmar. So, so really, even if he does not win a seat, he does actually still have a chance at, you know, maybe eventually becoming president. Um, but, but yeah, I, I do think that this, this, uh, this issue of, of alliances and what's going to happen post-November is actually one of the most, uh, the most uncertain things in Myanmar right now because it's also very hard to see, you know, how, how the ethnics will, will sort of play their card. I mean, who, who they'll throw their weight behind. And I, I think if the NLD does win a majority of seats and a clear enough majority, then, then, then they don't really have to seek uh, formal alliances, but at the end of the day, the military still has a quarter of seats in parliament. They still will call the shots to an extent, um, and they will still have a pick of who they can field as, as president, because it's, it's three candidates, one um, that the lower house and the upper house and one that the military puts forward. So they will still have a say in e either who the vice president or the president will be, and I, I think that will be interesting to, to observe. With the removal of Shueman, 
from the USDP, why isn't Aung San Suu Kyi trying to reach out to form better friends with the other groupings, ethnic minorities or otherwise? Uh, should I? Yeah, you um, So I think, I think with Aung San Suu Kyi, I, I think she's still, uh, you know, she, she always refers to her plan A, B, C, and D. You know, I, I really do think that she believes that there is a way for her to eventually become president, for her to change the constitution if the NLD wins a majority. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that will actually be doable because obviously to change the constitution, you do need at least one general. You do need one military-linked person to vote, mm. along with 75% of the parliament. So it, it's an overwhelming majority that you need. Um, and I think that she has not sought those alliances because she still believes that you know she will if she will get this, um, mm. uh, and and I, I think that that might not be completely connected with reality, um, but but <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I do think that uh, she 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 does still hold on very much to that ambition. Interesting. Very good. Do you two want to come back on that? No, yeah, not on that. Okay. I would like to open. I'm <laughs> not touching that one. Not yet. Anyway, I <laughs> uh, would like to open up the discussion to the audience. So, if it's okay, I would like to collect questions in groups of three or four, and then I will ask the panel as a whole to respond. As you know, this event is being recorded for subsequent podcast. So, I would like to, when you ask your question, please identify yourself briefly and then ask your question. I will, again, I will collect three or four questions, make your questions short and punchy, and we can get as many questions in as possible. So, um, sir, if you could begin. If you wait for the microphone, are there, there are microphones to come around? There's one coming around behind you. So we'll do you, and then the woman in green. Okay. Yeah, to everyone. I'd like to take the panel up on something that Mark Canning said um, just a a minute or two ago about capacity. Uh, If the process that follows the election is going to be messy, complicated, if there's going to be some sort of transition process just as there has been a peace process, then the fact that capacity is so thinly spread is tremendously important. And my impression is that, you know, people, apart from political complexion, people are floundering, really. You know, the the, the isolation of Myanmar um, has has had a, a deep impact. And I would really like to, to ask the panel, you know, who is helping with this? Particularly, Mark Canning, as a, as a former ambassador, may be able to deal with this. But also, you know, wh- where are the um, the political technocrats, if I can use that phrase, getting support from, and how they not not being steered in a particular direction, but in pure process terms, how they manage that process. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, woman in green, with a green jumper in the Hi. middle. Behind you, there's a microphone coming your way. Okay. Hi, um, my name is Sarah. I work here at the IGC. I just wanted to talk about, like, ask a question about Aung San Suu Kyi and her failed attempt to build this coalition with Shui Man, but also her failure to actually raise up an alternative leader within the NLD. 
Um, she knew that there was a very real possibility that she would not be president or be legible for it, and yet she didn't make any effort to really raise up much of a leader <laughs> within her own party. And so my question is really, how much is her kind of like blind entitlement to presidency really going to be an obstacle for Myanmar? Thank you very much. Now, there were some questions from the back of the room. So, sir. Hello, uh, my name is Jo So Luen. Actually, I'm from Myanmar. So, um, I want to ask a question. As uh, Shibani has said, NLD is likely to win the election. So, what kind of action or policy would NLD perform as priority? Okay, thank you very much. Excellent question. So, the, okay, behind you, that's one. If you could just stand up so the microphone can get to you. Here you go. I know who you are, but the ushers don't, so go ahead. Thank you so much. My name is Kim Mamaji. I'm from Oxford University, Aung San Suu Kyi Gender Research Fellow. And thank you so much for a very timely panel. And thank, particularly thank you for Shivani for uh, um, um, you know, particularly focusing on Mabata. And uh, we must remember that Mabata, the rise of Mabata cannot be underestimated because they, ha they are equal number with military. And they have equal influence and power with the military. And also, they have been greatly supported by the USDP. As you all know, yesterday, there are more than one, one million people attended for like, I know this. And, uh, and it's really interesting to see that you know, they forced NLD to announce that there is no single Muslim candidate in their body. So actually, the, like, these things are actually very dangerous for Burma democratic movement. And, but my question is that there are also problems with the fundamental issue of voting things. And even despite the fact that there are a lot of millions of support from EU, there are a lot of complaints on voting list. And I, have, I myself went to the vote, uh, voting poll and I saw 16 people have same date of birth in one page. And at the same time also there are many people including celebrities, famous Burmese are not included in the list. So how much do you confidence in this election? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to come back. I know there are lots more questions. I'll come back and I'll try and pick up people from upstairs as well. But perhaps I could turn first to, to Mark. Do you want to kick off on yeah, this? Shall I, shall I start with the issue of capacity? Because it's really important. And um, when I was there under the I was there from 05 to 09, which was the most closed period. And, and that really was what we were trying to do, was to build the seeds of an opposition to try as we could to foster what was left of a democratic opposition. Um, but now the country's opened up. The demand for the few people of talent has, has increased exponentially. There are loads of people trying to help, from George Soros's OSI to the World Bank, the IM. Everyone and their mother is trying to help, which is actually part of the problem. I mean, there's, there's huge dysfunctionality now. Um, but there's no easy answer to this. This is a country that's been completely cut off from the outside world, whose education system, which was once the finest in Southeast Asia, was, was totally destroyed. And it's going to take a generation or more to, to build them up. And I've been impressed at the number of young uh, Myanmar that I've 
that I've encountered who've gone back, including some people I never thought the military would let back. And I hope our Myanmar friends at LSE and elsewhere in the UK go back and help their country because it's really what's needed. And they need to work in the government rather than in the private sector for a couple of years. Um, but you're right, it, it's, it's going to hold, them, hold that nation back for many, many years. Thank you. Jürgen, recently you wrote about Aung San Suu Kyi's visit to China. And I wonder if uh, you might reflect a little bit on the policy priorities should, the, should her party come to power. So should her what? Policy priorities. Should they come to power? Um, I think if we look at the program um, that the NLD has uh, put, put out there, I mean, we can see that the priorities are clearly all to do with domestic politics, yeah? um, with uh, governance uh, and um, economic um, concerns of various kinds in order to lift up, I guess, the people uh, of the country. Um, and, and they're, they're all, I mean, this is, this is basically a continuation, I think, of what she has stood for uh, for many, many years. Uh, and so to that extent, it's understandable. Uh, there's almost nothing, you know, if you were looking on foreign policy, for example. It's all about domestic uh, priorities. Um, I think the, the visit to China was uh, interesting. Uh, she undertook that visit in early June of this year, because it constituted the first time uh, that she'd actually gone to China. Uh, it was a visit that was arranged on party, to party lines, uh, rather than she going as an MP. Uh, she was invited in, in her, her party capacity. And she was, uh, I think, uh, made aware of the kind of positions that uh, the People's Republic of China has uh, on the, the need for the two countries to continue to pursue a cooperative relationship. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, to some extent, the Chinese uh, have held out hope uh, that she may also uh, be an important figure uh, when it comes to deciding uh, very soon as to what will happen with this enormous Misson Dam, yeah, which was suspended uh, shortly after uh, the whole rapprochement between uh, um, President Hussein Sein and uh, and Aung San Suu Kyi happened in, in August of 2011. So the, the, the question mark really for the Chinese has been to what extent uh, can they continue to do business uh, in Myanmar? How, to what extent can they invest? Uh, how safe are these investments? Uh, and uh, I think they, were, they are hoping, obviously, for any government uh, to revisit that major decision because the Chinese have already invested 1.5 billion or something like that yeah, in this particular project. So it's a massive uh, sum of money. But yet it's a very, um, I mean, it's a very complex, uh, if you like, uh, situation in which any government would find itself. I think most people that I've spoken to on the ground uh, do not actually believe that this project uh, will be resumed, at least not soon. Um, the Chinese will also have made her aware of the delicate situation which two countries face along the border. Uh, again, we didn't go into any detail here, but you have to uh, recognize that uh, we're not just talking Kokang region here, we're talking about uh, the northern part uh, of, of Myanmar, 
in which, you know, be it in Kachin state, you have conflict, or in war state, yeah, you have an ethnic army which, you know, may total 15 or 20,000, nobody really knows, yeah, a, f- a sort of a force which is able to hold off anyone from entering without authorization, yeah, into that particular part. And if you think about any comparison with other countries, then I think it strikes us as being almost a unique case because uh, there are not surely very many countries where you have ethnic armies who are able uh, to uh, deny the authorities the kind of state-building process which the government, particularly the military, uh, has been pursuing arguably since the dawn of independence. Um, So there are connections across the border uh, which involve uh, locals uh, and and provincial authorities uh, and individuals um, you know, that are very difficult to capture uh, and, and that give rise to suspicion. Um, so it's these kinds of issues that she will have discussed uh, when she was in China, uh, and uh, I think she has taken so far, of course, the attitude that it is, uh, it is important to have, um, have good relations with China, but uh, what we also know is that historically she has always veered towards or lean towards the West, right? Uh, all of her initial visits were to the West, uh, be to the UK, to the United States. She hasn't even visited many of the ASEAN states, which is kind of surprising, yeah, perhaps for some of us. Um, so there is a real question mark yeah, about how she will think about these issues. And I think uh, much of the, the... If she was to score a major victory in the election, if she has to think about how to move forward, then she would probably have to face this question, not only what training do we get long-term, yeah, but also what do we do in the interim. Yeah? And then, of course, I think she's very much bound to address this question in terms of who can we trust yeah, to help us out. Uh, it's very, I think it's a very common theme that she doesn't trust a lot of people, perhaps, uh, to uh, help uh, her cause along the way. Uh, and uh, this, of course, means that it's all about personal relations uh, she may have, and some of these personal relations undoubtedly are, again, with people here in the U.K., so, you know, <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Jürgen. Shibani. Um, so on the question about Aung San Suu Kyi and, and coalition building, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because when she was first released from house arrest, she, she had a number of paths she could have taken. Um, the, the, the one is the one that she's taken was uh, you know, to, be, to be a politician, to contest the presidency, or to make it really obvious that she wanted to contest the presidency despite the constitutional ban. Um, but, the, but there were other paths she could have taken. Uh, one of them was you know, to groom a successor within the NLD and to, to groom the party so that they will be able to then you know, fulfill that role even if she cannot. Uh, or she could have kind of stepped back from politics and sort of remained uh, Burma's sort of moral voice, right, and, and sort of played the role that, that she played when she was under house arrest, you know, speaking up against dictatorship or speaking up against discrimination against the Rohingya, for example, or any, any other issue. Um, and, and, yeah, you know, if, if, if you speak to, to some people within Myanmar's sort of intellectual circles, I, I do think they would think that she took the wrong path, um, you know, that she took the path that... Um, that would have the most resistance and, and would sort of uh, kind of cause this, this reassessment of, of her legacy and, and sort of open her up to, to, to the day-to-day sort of like political fighting rather than, than have her be kind of above politics and able to, to lead the country and, and take the country forward by being its moral voice. Um, and, I, and I do think that, you know, for capacity within the NLD and, and the question also about the, their policies and how they will be in government, 
um, you know, it, it, it really does seem like the party is run as, as a sort of one-woman show. Um, her, her sort of, her committees, her, her the, 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 the economic committee, for example, any of the other committees, report to her directly. And, um, you know, even, even in interviews with, with NLD members, they will always defer and say, oh, Dorsu said this or Dorsu said that. You know, it's very, very hard for them to express their own opinion on something. And I, I do think that that, uh, you know, for, for governments and, and for the future of the country is, is, is going to be quite concerning. It's concerning for, for a lot of people, I think. Mm. Um, I just, yeah, uh, certainly, please. I mean, I just wanted to put an alternative view on that because there has been a lot of criticism. But also you've got to imagine what the situation would be if there was no Dorsu. And if there had been no Dorsu before the opening up and after. And people would often say to me when I was there, well, she's no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. To which I would say, well, if that was true, she wouldn't be in, under house arrest or in, mm -hmm. in prison. You know, she clearly was. And um, the same is true now that it's a bit like when Donald Rumsfeld said, if I want to speak to Europe, who do I telephone? And it's a bit like that with the opposition in Myanmar. If there wasn't a Dorsu to you know, pull them together and to command the respect of different ethnic groups um, and, and elements within the military, you think, well, actually, how would this process work? It wouldn't even get off first base. So there are other factors in it as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, okay. I'm going to take another round of questions now. So as people get ready, I just wanted to remark that the question from our Myanmar colleague in the back of the room was quite generally about policy. And it could have been a reference to what kind of economic policy NLD might follow, how it relates to what's happening with the opening up of the ASEAN economic community, what does, what's its attitude on tariffs, foreign investment, exploiting of natural resources, all of which are, you know, from my own perspective as an economist, I'm also greatly interested in. But it's quite instructive for me to hear how the narrative here that we're building around this political competition does not yet hugely emphasize that, that conversation, but maybe it's something that I hope that we will be able to grow more of. Let me take another round of questions now. Um, can I take Judith's question here? Judith, if you could, I know who you are, but the ushers might know. If you could just stand up quickly so that we can get the microphone to you. Hi. So. Anti-Muslim riots haven't reached the same levels as they did in 2012 and 2013. And I was wondering, even though small-scale pogroms do continue, I was wondering if you would comment on what sort of triggers you'd see as inflaming these in the next few months in the lead-up to the election. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I think the gentleman in the back of the room, and then I'll come to you. Um, hi, I am Bezong, and I'm the Myanmar management student. Um, my question is to direct to the economics point of view. So um, if NLD didn't win in favor in this election, um, what do you expect the foreign investment landscape in the country to be in the future? Because there's already a sub substantial amount of foreign in investment in the country at this moment. Will it sustain in the future, or how will it turn out? Okay, thank you. Thank you. No, there was a gentleman in the corner. Yeah, if you could just... 
Hi. Um, my name is Boy Lee. I'm from Exeter University, recent LSE graduate. Well, um, I'm come from China, so I, I want to come back to uh, the question about the influence or the attitudes that comes from the Chinese uh, government. So, um, kind of have two questions, but I think it's connected. Um, the question is, um, to what extent do you believe these sudden progress of democratic progress uh, or change in Myanmar is driven by a strong belief in ideology? Or it's more like influenced by more practical kind of calculation of external influences? And the second question is, um, how do you actually formulate uh, the role of China um, in Myanmar as more like a threat of its recent progress? Or actually, um, the, the country's foreign policy uh, can be portrayed as a positive uh, force? Because um, I think there is, a, there is kind of... Uh, a discourse on Chinese foreign policy in the sense that they are very um, less ideology driven and more kind of pragmatic okay. ideological driven so I, I just wonder how you actually understand or interpret future uh, influence of such um, uh, government. Okay, thank you. Role of China. Now, um, women's scarf with the green, you could Sorry. Jessica, oh. if you could wait for the microphone. Yeah, thanks. thanks. My name is Jessica Avalon. Uh, I'm from the Australian National University. Uh, I'm, I just wanted to pick up on Shibani's comment that there's really nobody fighting in the corner of the ethnic groups. And I'm slightly concerned that uh, in addition to that, through a perhaps incompetence or purposeful um, actions, uh, the voting process is going to be weakest in those ethnic areas as well. Uh, so we'll see this build up of hope uh, and uh, then there's likely to be a huge letdown when a lot of the ethnic minorities' interests are not represented in a substantial way. Uh, to what extent do you think that that is likely to be the case? And do you see this leading to renewed and perhaps prolonged conflict uh, coming out of uh, a sort of fading of hopes and uh, disillusionment with the idea of change. Thanks. Thank you, Jessica. Um, okay, let, if we can begin. Jürgen, you're free to pick up on any of these questions, but certainly the question about China mm. seems to be exactly uh, directed at your, your back, your, uh, what you've recently been doing. Okay. Um, if we go back a couple of years, uh, then we can say that even though Myanmar, in declaratory terms, has a non-aligned and active and independent foreign policy, uh, the military government, which preceded the current one, uh, did in practice actually have some form of limited alignment with China in order to deal with the perceived U.S. Yeah, threat in particular. Uh, and not in terms of military intervention, but primarily, in my view anyway, in terms of a possible UN Security Council resolution that would have opened up the possibility yeah, of a future uh, intervention of some sort. Now, 
That obviously, that form of alignment has, has gone. And uh, Myanmar's uh, declaratory and substantive foreign policy thus have, uh, if you like, at least in my view, converged once more. But the relationship is tricky yeah, that Myanmar now has with China. And I think uh, it's, it's all very well saying that in some ways, of course, the relationship has been a positive one. There are uh, examples over the years of much cooperation. Yeah, um, clearly, they have also... There are certain people who have benefited from that as well within Myanmar, we should say. Um, but at the end of the day, the feeling is that China hasn't been as forthcoming uh, in some matters as you know, the Myanmar political elites, particularly perhaps the military, would have liked. And this is, again, the point about how to deal with those areas in northern Myanmar that are not effectively under the control. Yeah? If you look at the Constitution, the Constitution says there should be one army, but this is not the reality of Myanmar. Yeah? When the government of, uh, of, of, of uh, Senior General Than Shui set forth a plan uh, for the future democratization of the country, a so-called roadmap issued in 2003, yeah, uh, it, it was... Uh, probably uh, anticipated that by the time this process finishes, they would have achieved f better success at actually uh, this project of state building that they entered into uh, many decades ago. But they haven't been able to really make much progress. And if you look at the situation now, it's arguably worse than it's ever been uh, uh, for the last couple of years anyway, because there's much more fighting yeah, going on in that region. Uh, and if you look at the Kokang, obviously, these are, for some people, ethnic Chinese, um, who may or may not have enjoyed the support of other ethnic groups also on the border, be it the Wa or be it Mongla or whatever, yeah, uh, and all of whom entertain some relationships uh, uh, with people across the border. Um, now, when the Myanmar government pursued a military solution to deal with the issue in Kokang, they, of course, accidentally killed some Chinese across the border yeah? uh, and had to apologize yeah, for this in a spectacular fashion. Um, but, well, not spectacular in the sense that it was uh, spectacular, but in terms they had to apologize yeah? in, 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 in a particular way. Uh, and, and this, of course, uh, ultimately led to Chinese... Uh, government undertaking military live exercises right on the border. That's why I said in my initial remarks, I mean, this hasn't happened you know, for a long time. You know? This is therefore one of the worst um, kind of periods in the bilateral relationship, and it's difficult to see either side really backing down. On the one hand, the Chinese side is saying, you need to have, a st you know, have stability on the border. You know? The Myanmar side would say, well, you know, that's not really up to you. Yeah? Uh, these people uh, fought us, and uh, we have suffered many deaths, and we are going to uh, pursue the military solution for as long as we like. So in a way, there's a stalemate there. Yeah? And it is ironic. Of course, China officially says, you know, we follow of a policy of non-interference, and we have, we're dedicated to this principle. But at the end of the day, 
by pursuing this policy or principle in the way they do, they are, of course, interfering, yeah? uh, because they are preventing, and this is a government perspective, I should say, this is not perspective you know, of those ethnic groups concerned, uh, but they, they actually uh, pr- prevent, uh, to some extent, uh, things from happening uh, that have been aimed for, yeah, for a long time. So, therefore, the relationship is complicated, it is difficult, yeah, and uh, it is also not so easy to say, okay, uh, we will it, improve the relationship by pursuing other uh, issues. You know, some of the issues that I refer to in my introductory remarks have to do with uh, creating, um, if you like, a, a sort of a pathway through Myanmar, you know, so that China can access uh, the Bay of Bengal, can access the Indian Ocean. Uh, you know, these, the, the projects that we can talk about here and that we're under discussion involve, you know, railway lines, roads, etc. Uh, but these are all, you know, strategically important projects that do not necessarily, either for economic or other reasons, appeal yeah, uh, to the Myanmar government. So there is not necessarily much out there, apart from, you know, good and big talk, uh, in how to move that relationship yeah, to much better ground. I'm sure they will all try. They all have a stake yeah, in each other's future. Um, but at the moment, I think it's still the case that the relationship uh, is a bit of an impasse. Thank you. Now, Shibani, obviously your opening comments uh, would have prompted people to start to reflect on the nature of the anti-Muslim violence or the representation of ethnic interests, but also... You know, I know that you've recently written about the, how the gloss has come off U.S. investment in Myanmar. So feel free to pick up on any of these issues. Uh, yes. Yeah. So in, ter- in terms of foreign investment, uh, I think that you know, uh, predominantly, I'm sure Mark can touch on this as well, but investors like stability. And I think for them, uh, you know, because of the capacity issue, because, um, you know, approval process for the licenses has been concentrated in the hands of so few, uh, businesses would like to see those ministers continue in, in you know, positions of power. One of them is So Thane, who is Thane Sain's uh, economic minister. Uh, and there, there are a couple of others as well, uh, you know, Setong, Winston Setong in the central bank and and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I think uh, it, it would be prudent for an NLD government, uh, if, if, they, if they do indeed win a majority of seats, to continue uh, working together very closely with those ministers who really shepherded the process. Um, it really um, would be beneficial uh, to, to businesses and beneficial for the continuity of, of the reform process. Um, and, and, yeah, it is, it is true that uh, U.S. businesses in particular have um, you know, issues with remaining sanctions, uh, including the, the SDN list, uh, which uh, is a blacklist of individuals that are linked to the previous military government. Uh, I think that, you know, from the U.S. perspective, there are definitely indications that if the elections go as planned or go as well as can pos- they can possibly go, given the structural deficiencies, then that might prompt a policy change on the SDN list, and it, it might... Um, sort of normalize relations even more with the U.S. and Myanmar and some of those sanctions would come off. And I think that that would be, you know, boost number two for businesses. The the first would have been, you know, obviously Barack Obama's trip in 2012 and, you know, the removal of sanctions in 2012 as well that, you know, basically the U.S. was telling its businesses, you know, come here, invest, um, have have good examples of U.S. businesses uh, in in a country that, you know, has has never really had Western investment for the past 50 years and and sort of do do well. and there haven't been that many examples of that yet because they're not that big 
commitments coming from U.S. companies. Uh, the oil and gas um, and telecom stuff is definitely significant, but a lot of that's kind of exploration as well, even even with the oil and gas. And I, I do think that you know U.S. companies do have a good opportunity to kind of uh, show it, show how it's, it's it's done or how it can be done better in in, in Myanmar than. than than, than perhaps you know the, the Chinese businesses, right, which have had very bad reputation for being uh, not 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 particularly uh, you know good in terms of their labor practices. Uh, on, on Judith's question on the uh, anti-Muslim riots uh, and, and what might trigger that, I think uh, it's really interesting to see how Mabatha has uh, kind of moved now towards more you know influencing politics and legislation than you know on the ground violence i think they've become a lot savvier and more mainstream as a political organization even um and you know they're, they're less concerned with sort of uh, distributing pamphlets uh, you know anti-muslim and and sort of encouraging violence on, on on a kind of local level but more interested in influencing legislation that would have you know, that would allow discrimination on a wider level. Uh, so I think that's why you, you see kind of less outbursts of violence happening. Uh, in Rakhine State, you know, the, the, the state has a new uh, uh, chief minister. Uh, he's been in, in the state for, for two years, and I think he's really controlled um, violence from, from erupting there. But I do think that uh, ahead of the elections, because the Rohingya don't really understand that they, that they can't vote, uh, on November 8th, uh, you know, th- there are going to be some people in, in that state who are able to vote. Uh, there, there's some areas which are not, where, where the Muslims are not fully uh, sort of isolated from the Buddhist population. And there, there's some Muslims who, who do actually have uh, citizenship cards, uh, the, the Kaman Muslims who, who are not like the Rohingya. Uh, they, 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 do, they do have uh, identification cards. And then I think you're going to have a very confusing situation on, on that day itself. And, uh, you know, I, I know various organizations have a lot more election monitoring capacities within Rakhine State because they, they are quite concerned about the outbreak of, of violence around the election there. Interesting. Just Mark, please. Yeah, I think there's clearly a huge amount of uncertainty in the months ahead, the weeks ahead. But I think the issue of foreign direct investment is actually a st- very important stabilizing factor because whoever ends up running the place or whatever the permutations are, they have got to maintain that foreign direct investment. It's, it's underpinning thousands of jobs, um, and that will, I think, act as a certain stabilizer in, in the whole thing. There was a question I just wanted to touch on, on was it an ideological change that led Myanmar to open up in 2011? And I think this is a really interesting question because there are basically two schools of thought. There are one, one school says the sanctions were ratcheted up so tight the generals threw up their hands and said, we can't take it anymore tell us what you want us to do. Um, But it wasn't that. It certainly wasn't that in my view. But what it was, um, was sanctions operating in a different way. It created huge distortions in the economy. It shut off Western capital from Myanmar. It forced the Myanmar economy really to become, to, to lean more and more towards China. And I think the generals understood, the generals who are proud men, whatever you say about them, they understood the choice was very clear. Did they become a second-rate province of China or did they take back control of, of, their, of their lives and operate a more balanced relationship with China and the West? So sanctions didn't operate like a, you know, a boot on their neck, but it... it definitely operated in a slightly different way in terms of forcing them to confront choices. Thank you. Now, I know I promised I would try and get as many questions in as possible, but we are running up against 
a strict time limit. So what I'm going to need to do now is I'm going to invite the panelists to, to provide a brief closing statement to reflect on both what they've heard from each other, but also from the questions and the conversation that we've had. I'm going to go in reverse order. So Shibani, do you want to begin? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the, the theme of, of this panel really has been the amount of political uncertainty that Myanmar will face over the next couple of months. Um, but, you know, for me, the, the biggest issue, uh, more, more, than, more than, you know, the, the NLD and, and the fate of Aung San Suu Kyi and, and the presidency and so on, is uh, how Myanmar controls this, this really ugly and kind of uh, scary rise of Buddhist nationalism that we've seen over the past few years. Um, and I, I think because that, that is so sort of ground level and so, and so visceral for so many people, and it affects the day-to-day -day lives of, 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 of so many people within the country, um, I think that you know, if the government does what they, they, they have been doing over the past four years, which is continuing to sort of uh, enable these, uh, the, the most radical and the most hardline voices within the society to have a, to have a soapbox and you know, to have an influence over political decisions and business decisions and you know, laws that are enacted, I think that could be a very, very harmful thing for the transition. Um, and you know, in, in the context of, of Southeast Asia, when, when you are surrounded by you know, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, you know, the, it, it, is, it is potentially very destabilizing. Um, and I, I think that whichever government that's in power, be it the NLD or the USDP, um, the, one of the things that they will have to do is, is to kind of um, sort of fight back this, this surge of, of Buddhist nationalism that we've seen um, over the past few years. Thank you. Jürgen. Well, I think the, for me, the, obviously I worked in the International Relations Department. Uh, the key point is uh, how will Myanmar's foreign policy evolve? Um, how will the particular relationships it has with the, the Western states uh, and China evolve? My point I would like to make um, sort of now is really about my belief that uh, whatever really happens in the election, it's very difficult to see Myanmar move away from the position of, of non-alignment, uh, even, you know, if, if we have a, a Dorsu victory. Um, there has been so much interest um, among many to diversify foreign relationships, and I think we've all said it's very important uh, for the for the elites to have a balance, yeah, given the kind of country that Myanmar is, that I think that this is going to be uh, a trade also in foreign policy in the future. Thanks. Mark? Um, just as it's going to require compromise and statesmanship and pragmatism from the players within Myanmar, uh, my hope is uh, that we see the same thing from the West, uh, from the US, from, from the EU. Um, I hope they don't look at these elections. Clearly, these elections are going to be suboptimal. You know, one hopes that they're okay. But you can always pick faults with them in a hundred ways. And I think what is really required is a realism on the part of the West in particular that this is a, a messy, slow process. I mean, I think the Arab Spring has been very instructive in demonstrating that you cannot move from black to white, bad to good, there are vested interests, and you wish those away at your peril. And if you want to make those changes too quickly, you can, but the whole thing will fall apart. And, um, you know, just as Indonesia has taken 15 years to do it, so Myanmar will take 15 years. Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. You need to lead people along uh, out, out of politics. It's going to take a decade or more for the military to relinquish their grip, and people need to be realistic about this in um, giving it space to happen. Thank you.
Okay, on that note about being realistic in our expectations, I'm afraid we have come to the end of our evening. Um, I want to just, first of all, thank all of you, the audience, for your interest, for your attention, for all the excellent questions you've asked. Then I would like to invite you to join me in thanking our panelists for a truly scintillating evening. Thank you all very much.